0: Well, our scripture reading for this evening is from the book of Ezra in the Old Testament, chapters 2 and chapter 3 as well. So that's the book of Ezra, chapter 2 and chapter 3. Give you a moment to turn there. Hear now the word of the Lord from Ezra, chapter 2. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Serahiah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Banah. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Arah, 775. The sons of Pahath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. The sons of Babai, 623. The sons of Asgad, 1,222. The sons of Adonikim, 666. The sons of Bigvi, 2,056. The sons of Adim, 454. The sons of Attar, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bazai 323. The sons of Jorah, 112. The sons of Hashem, 223. The sons of Gebar, 95. The sons of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Netophath, 56. The men of Anothoth, 128. The sons of Azmaveth, 42. The sons of Kiriathorim, Shephira and Beoroth, 743. The sons of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Mikmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 223. The sons of Nebo, 52. The sons of Magbish, 156. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Haram, 320. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Sanaa, 3630. The priests. The sons of Jediah of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1052. The sons of Pashur, 1247. The sons of Harim, 1017. The Levites the sons of Jeshua and Kadmiel, the sons of Hadaviah, 74, the singers, the sons of Asaph, 128, the sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atar, the sons of Talmud, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hatita, and the sons of Shobai, in all, 139, the temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabeoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Siaha, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebanah, the sons of Hagaba, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shamlai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Rea'i, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nekoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uza, the sons of Pase, the sons of Besai, the sons of Aznath, the sons of Menu, the sons of Nephism, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakafah, the sons of Harhar, the sons of Baslath, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos. the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tema, the sons of Niziah, and the sons of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasophereth, the sons of Peruda. The sons of Jala, the sons of Darkan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephathiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pachareth Hazabim, <laughs> and the sons of Ami. All the temple servants and all and the sons of Solomon's servants were three hundred and ninety-two. The following were those who came up from Tel Melah. Tel-Harsha, Cherub, Adan, and Imr. Though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakoda, 652. Also of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Tumen. The whole assembly together was 42,360 Besides their male and female servants of whom there were 7,337 and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem made free will offerings for the house of God. To erect on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. When the seventh month came, And the children of Israel were in the towns. The people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of josadak made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Hanadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the levites the sons of asaph with cymbals to praise the lord according to the directions of david king of israel and they sang responsively praising and giving thanks to the lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward israel and all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is God's Word. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we need your help. As we come to your word, we tremble at what it must have been like for those that we read of here in Ezra chapter 2 and 3, and all that you were doing in their midst. And Lord, we come feeling far away from these people, from reading texts like this, But we ask you to come and to feed us and to fill us according to your word. We know it will accomplish its purposes. We know it does not return void. And we praise you for it. So help us in this moment. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text this evening, you've heard it read. It moves from captivity to construction, from a scattered people because of idolatrous worship to a saved people for right worship. It moves from exile to exaltation, from banishment to building, it's captivity to construction. And as we come to this text, the hurdle in our minds might be, why? Why the history book of Ezra? Why in the year 2023 are we reading chapter 2 with all these names that even my pastor can't say correctly? My favorite name, by the way, is in verse 33, Oh No. <laughs> Why this building project from long ago in chapter 3? Why? Well, it's because God speaks to us for our own instruction, for our own encouragement from his living and active word today. And he does that through Ezra chapter 2, Ezra chapter 3. You may walk in here tonight with questions. Where is God now? What is he up to? What is required of me in this world? Those good and valuable questions are answered tonight in the word before us. Tonight we're instructed to know this, and I've tried to narrow it down to one sentence. God is building his house through his people to restore his worship. God is building his house through his people to restore his worship. Maybe you're prone to think that God has stalled. Yeah he, he was building something at one time in my life, in my kids, in my city. In my country, in this world. But when I drive by now, all I see is it's like it's the orange cones that are out. It's a construction site and there's no activity to witness. God's not building. Maybe God has left the building. Friends, be encouraged. God has left His word to remind us that He has not left the building. <laughs> He is building his house through his people to restore his worship. And there are two clear parts to this passage that I want to draw your attention to, to help you see it in its fullness. Chapter 2, we see that God is building his house through his people. Through his people. And in chapter 3, how is God building his house? To restore his worship. Two parts, chapter 2, chapter 3. How is God building his house through his people to restore his worship? And so look with me, and let's look at chapter 2. How is God building his house chapter 2? It's through his people. They are those described, look at verse 1 of chapter 2, as those who have come out of captivity from exile in Babylon. We heard from last week from Pastor Dan that it was the idolatrous worship of Israel that led them, God's people, to be punished and sent out. But when that punishment came, it came with a promise. And the promise was for restoration. And it came through the mouth of the prophet of Jeremiah. And take a look at the very first verse of the book. In the year 539 BC, we have God at work to fulfill his promise, sovereignly stirring up a pagan king to make a decree for the people of God to return to build the Lord a house in Jerusalem. In verse 2. It's amazing. There's a sovereign stirring that's happening. Verse 1, it's the king Who stirred up, and then look at verse 5 of chapter 1. God stirs up the people to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. God is at work. And so in chapter 2, it says, These are the people. Here they are. I'm going to list all of them. It's the list of a spirit-stirred people by name or location or role that returned from exile to rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And isn't it interesting? The author is not concerned with the journey. From Babylon to Jerusalem was hundreds of miles, likely a months, months months-long journey. But it's not the process of the journey that's important to the author. It's the people. It's the people who returned, who God brought back. Verse 64, we're given the total number. When including the male and female servants and the singers, it was just under 50,000 people. And we're given the specificities of the people through various headers. Quickly go through it. I'll show you this. Maybe you caught it as we were reading. Verse 1 and 2, we read of the leaders. Two key names there, Zerubbabel and Jeshua. From there to verse 35, we read of the lay Israelites. Some of those who were recognized by their families. Some of those that were recognized by their location. Their hometown. And look down then to verse 36. We see the priests are recorded those who were set apart for the duties of worship. Then the Levites are recorded, 40 to 42, those who assisted the priests. Then Solomon's servants in 43 to 55, those who assisted the Levites. Then there's the record in verses 59 to 63 of various unconfirmed claims. Know how careful they are. Here are the unconfirmed claims of Israelite birth and also claims to the priesthood. Here's the record. Here's the process for it. It's significant. We are looking for the proof of lineage, for claims, for places to settle or to serve as a priest, and the process is further consultation is needed for these people. And it starts to close with the totals of the people and the animals, there's that summary statement in verse 70 describing all the people planted living in their towns. The people have returned. A detailed list. What a document. When we come to a long list of names like this in the Bible, it can be very easy to just skip right past that. That's how my... Bible in a year plan, I got that one. I'm going to check that off. not taking the time to especially read that or read it out loud. What's the significance? God's word living and active for us today? Ezra chapter 2? It's for us. It's for the original audience. And I've sat and wondered this week, and I think there are a few points that can be made. And first, it reminds us this. God's promises are life-changing for real people. His Spirit is at work in ordinary people. Do you know any of these people? Ordinary people. Real promise, real people. These were people who up. Rooted their lives and made the trip of a lifetime to Jerusalem to have their lives changed forever because of God's word, God's promise that He spoke, and because of His sovereign stirring to fulfill that promise. God's promises intersect with and impact real people. I love the detail, the specific numbers. God's working through families. These aren't well-known people. They're ordinary people, but each one is accounted for and numbered as a recipient of God's promise. So too today, God's promises and his spirit are at work in normal, ordinary people, families, such as tonight. And we praise God. The church I grew up in was a church plant from College Church, this church family, and there was a document listing the specific names of the peoples and families who were led by the Spirit to uproot their families and journey to the south side of Chicago to plant a church. God's Spirit working through ordinary people to bring about His worship. I think of the list of our our own membership here at College Church. might not seem like a special document to you. Each name, each family represented, accounted for, recorded, God's promises affecting real people, ordinary people, but spirit-filled people. It was in the day of King Cyrus and his decree, and it is today. Who is God? He's God who makes promises and keeps promises and works through ordinary people. What an encouragement for us. But second, notice the emphasis in how the people are described. There's a resounding emphasis, as you have heard it read and looked at it, It's a list of people, yes, but it's also the task that they have. What's the task? Do you see it? How much of the description is related to their duties in worship and in the temple? Old Testament, Israel, the temple, the place of worship, the Jews, so much of the description is around this emphasis. This is not just a a happy homecoming list. This is the list of a people who are returning with a purpose. This is the list of a people who have been saved so that they might sing, as it were. God's people being restored is not simply about geography, but about doxology or praise. Coming home was not simply about a place to lay their heads, but a praise that was supposed to come from their mouths. They've gone from a captive people because of idolatrous worship, because they turned away from God to a construction project for the purpose of right worship. Who they are is described in relation to the worship God deserves from them. Do we understand ourselves and our purpose ultimately in terms of the instrument of worship that we are and are called to be to God himself. What's the legacy you hope to leave? What do you you want to be remembered for? What kind of list do you want your name to make its way on when you're all said and gone? A legacy of ordinary, spirit-filled people, that have given their lives to being set apart as an instrument for worship to the one true and living God. What a great legacy to be included in this list. I can't wait to meet some of these families. I'm sure that this will, did you read Ezra too? Did you guys read it? Did you skip over it? We'll get to heaven one day in the last. ask us. did you actually read it? Did, now, did your church preach on that? <laughs> yes. Spirit-filled people that were worship-driven. It's a great challenge. What about us? God is building his house through his people. Why? To There's a purpose behind it, to restore his worship. And so turn with me to chapter 3. Ch- chapter 3 is when we enter the construction site. We're walking into the construction site in chapter 3. And verses 9 to 13 will focus on the temple But verses 1 to 8, they focus on the rebuilding of the altar. And we're given a time marker in verse 1. And there's a lot of context here in Ezra that can be challenging to understand. But to to simplify it, the time marker that we have is it is the seventh month. And for a Jew in Old Testament Israel reading that, there would be much significance to that for their calendar. This is the month that they would observe the Day of Atonement and also the Feast of Booths, which was celebrating the ex- exodus and, and remembering the time that they spent in the wilderness. And you can read about it in Numbers chapter 29 of the detailed lists of the offerings that were required by the people of God to worship Him rightly. Rightly. And to remember what he's done. And we're told in verse 2 that the primary leaders that we read earlier, Jeshua and Zerubbabel, worked to build the altar of God. And why did they do that? Well, it says to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses. And so they built the the altar. They kept the Feast of Booths. In verse 4, it says, as it is written, again, and from the first day of the seventh month, they are offering these sacrifices, this worship, once again to God, a people who hadn't been able to do this in this place. And all the people are united as one man, it says in Jerusalem. Did you catch it? This, this is restored worship, but it's worship that's by the book. It's according to, to the law, the first five books of the Bible. It's according to the law of Moses. It is as it is written. For Israel to be in relation with a holy God, these offerings in this place from this altar was required. It's not just that they chose to worship God, but it's how they worshiped that mattered. By the book according to God's word. This is not simply reverence, but a restored worship. And it begs the question, how do you know what the one true God, if, if God exists, how do you know what he requires of you? Is that, is that something I am find out on my, by myself? What happens when different people disagree? How do you know what God requires of you? It's according to his word. If you're not a Christian here tonight, you might be wondering why we're opening the Bible and reading these two chapters. And it's because we believe this is God's special revelation to us today. We believe that he speaks And he acts on his people through his word. And he reveals in his word what is required of us before him. Not simply a reverence that God exists, as good as that may be, but a right worship, a right worship according to what he has required in his word. And so we're told in verse 6, Take a look. Although the altar was rebuilt and the offerings and feasts were observed, the foundation of the temple had not yet been laid. More work to do. And so in verse 8 we read that in the second year and the second month construction began. And again, the context here, this would certainly be recognized by Old Testament Israel. The second month was when King Solomon began construction on the first temple. The echoes of what's happening, the parallels would be lighting up in the minds of the reader, the Jew. And it says, I love this language, Zerubbabel and Jeshua made a beginning. (laughs) It's the beginning of a new era. A new beginning for a rebellious people who have been brought back by a loving and faithful God. And they appoint Levites. They appoint Jeshua, his kinsmen, uh, to supervise the work. And the builders, in verse 10, they laid the foundation of the temple. The temple, which is the place of God's presence for his people there in Jerusalem. And the priests come in and they're described as having their Trumpets. And the Levites come in with their symbols to praise the Lord and it says according to the directions of David, king of Israel. Again, this is worship that's by the book. Rebuilding God's house was not simply about returning to a place but returning to a right praise of him. And so the people lift up their voices. Look at verse 11. And they sing. And they say, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid. Can you imagine the scene? How beautiful, how victorious this would have been. The foundation of the temple of the Lord has been laid. The shouting, thousands of people. The echoes of an elated people. Oh, oh, wait a second. What's that, what's that sound? What's that, what's that noise? You could imagine the hands in the air shouting. The hands begin to drop. The heads begin to turn. Turn. Do you you hear that? What's that noise? Where's it coming from? You turn. There it is. You see the priests, the Levites, the heads of the father's houses, the old men, as it's described, who had seen the first house, Solomon's temple, in all its glory. And they're weeping. They're weeping. Everyone else is shouting and they're weeping. God has just brought His people back from exile. There's joy. Thousands shouting. And they're full of sorrow. They're weeping. Verse 13 says, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. Joyful shouting and yet sorrowful weeping. Can you blame them? Can you you blame those who shouted for joy? After all they'd been through? After all God had done for them, shouldn't they be filled with joyful shouts? And yet, can you blame those who are weeping? After all that they've been through. After worshiping at the site of Solomon's glorious temple, feeling like the glory days are stuck in the past, looking at the foundation, they can't help but remember a better one. One that they don't have anymore. Can you blame them? It's a fair response for them. But I'm going to say this. It is not a fair response for us today. And there's a reason for that. For from the beginning, God has been restoring his worship. From the moment Adam and Eve disregarded God's word and sinned, God has been determined to dwell with his people And to be worshiped rightly by them. From the garden to the tabernacle to the temple to the new temple, God has been progressively accomplishing his plan to restore his worship. And we read in Haggai chapter 2 this God says to these people, Who is left among you who saw this house, the temple, in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not nothing in your eyes? But then he says this, Be strong, I will fill this house with glory, and the latter glory to this house shall be greater than the former. There's another promise that a greater glory is coming. That's what the Bible teaches. And this is the promise that all the Old Testament, in in a sense, is pointing forward to. That the foundation of right worship is ultimately not a place, but a person. Gospel of John, the Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us, and we have seen His what? His glory. Speaking of Jesus, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The person and work of Christ is the place of right worship for the Christian. It's in Him that we offer to God pleasing worship. Jesus is the greater glory. Jesus laid the greater foundation by laying down His life for sinners. Jesus is the one who takes all of those who call upon his name in faith from spiritual death and captivity to a place of life, to a place of spirit-filled construction, (laughs) purpose. Ephesians 2 tells us in the New Testament that God is building his house through his people, the church, on the cornerstone. We sang it, on the cornerstone of Christ to be a holy temple a dwelling place for God by his spirit this is what god is doing today how thrilling how amazing to know this for this to be the plan throughout all history for this these words in Ezra 2 and 3 to be pointing us forward pointing us forward so that one day we can know we can look and read these words and know it is in Christ that we've received the greater glory. Jesus is the is the place of right worship. And the most powerful thing that we can do is proclaim that this is what God is doing. This is what he is doing. To witness to what God is building. He's building it. My kingdom is not of this world. This is what God is doing. What's this mean for us tonight as we get ready to close this down? A few things. Three things. I'll start with the letter S because that's what pastors are supposed to do. <laughs> It means we should stand. Stand on the foundation of Christ as revealed to us in the Word. That is the place of right worship. Our foundation is Christ. We are not dependent on the faithfulness of a place like Jerusalem. We are not dependent on the faithfulness of a place like Wheaton, Illinois we are dependent on the firm foundation that has been laid in Christ. Second, it means we should sing. A saved people are meant to be a singing people. God did not reconcile us to himself so that we could be quiet or so that we could mumble. Shouting seems to be right. Dancing <laughs> seems to be right. Singing, singing is an act of thanksgiving. It recognizes rightly what what God is doing. We can sing in any circumstance, even as we experience opposition, and we'll see it in chapter four. So too today, we expect opposition. We engage, but we're not outraged because we know the outcome. God has accomplished His plan. Fulfilling his promises for all this time. He will bring it to completion. We can always sing. And third, it means that we should sacrifice. Not not the offerings laid out in chapter 3. But what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12. We should seek to give our lives as a living sacrifice. He says... Which is your spiritual worship. No area of our life is left untouched by the duty of living to the glory of God. We are an instrument of worship. You're not better off. You're not better than other people. We're not as Christians. We've been saved as sinners, but we've been saved to sing. To stand, to sacrifice, to witness, to testify what he's doing. We are an instrument for worship. So, as we said at the beginning, it's for our instruction, for our encouragement. I hope this is encouraging to you, as it has been for me, this text. Where is God? Has he stalled? Has he left the construction site? No. All you need to do is look around. Look around at one another here. God is building His house through His people to restore His worship. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're humbled as we consider Your plan in the fullness of time through the nation of Israel, The Old Testament Scriptures revealing that a greater glory is coming, and we know that greater glory has come in the person and work of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because we earned it or we merited your love, but because you chose freely for your good pleasure to do so that we might be instruments to your worship. And I pray you would encourage us this week in that truth, that we would sing, that we would stand, that we would sacrifice, standing firm, knowing that you are accomplishing your purposes even today. You are building your house through your people for and to restore your worship. We thank you for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.